Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. In each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. In this episode, the story of a young volunteer in Nepal who finds his lifelong passion when he gets a job helping refugees. I'm your host, Alexandra Sasha Gorishak, and today I'm speaking with IFRC Secretary General Jagan Chepagain. He shares his journey from a 14-year-old Red Cross youth volunteer to the leader of the world's largest humanitarian volunteer network. We talk about the opportunities he sees for working alongside local communities to find lasting solutions to today's greatest humanitarian challenges. We have to start changing in many ways the narrative. And I think that the narrative that exists in the humanitarian ecosystem, including in our organization, is always about bringing support. And always somehow articulating our work in that power imbalance that we are here to support you, meaning that we have something you don't. And this narrative exists in the in the humanitarian ecosystems, and I repeat that narrative myself many times. But I don't like that narrative increasingly. So that's why I think the narrative needs to change much more about working together to bring in hope and dignity. Jagan Chapagain, thank you for joining us today. As the Secretary General of the IFRC, you are the executive leader of the largest volunteer-based humanitarian network in the world. That sounds like a, an immense job. What does it mean? What does it entail? Uh, I think uh, a lot of the answer is in your question. <laughs> As you talk, this being a network. Uh, so in many ways, this is quite different than leading a singular organization. Uh, this is an organization of organizations. Uh, and that um, gives us its uh, uniqueness as, as an organization. This is also an organization that is primarily volunteer-based, meaning that the people join with an objective to, to volunteer to make a difference in somebody else's life. So leading this organization is a big privilege in the sense that you are sitting in a chair, of the organization where people are so motivated by themselves with the sole objective of making difference in somebody else's life. That's the sole motivation. So that's an enormous privilege. But at the same time, this also brings an enormous responsibility in the sense that when you have people with that motivation coming, coming forward, I think you feel that sense of responsibility that how do we steer this organization moving forward so that these volunteers, their aspirations in helping someone else is actually is met every day, 24-7. And that's an enormous responsibility. You already alluded to that. Being an organization of organizations comes with challenges, I'm sure. What are the challenges that you would highlight? Um, you know, I always like to talk about opportunities because every challenge is hidden with, with, with opportunity. Of course, when you are such a diverse organization, being able to understand that diversity um, and trying to turn that diversity into an advantage, uh, a benefit for the organization, it's, it's a great opportunity. But it does require a dedicated effort and time and energy and trying to um, get this diversity focused into a common goal and common objectives. So it does require a lot of time. It does uh, require a lot of dedication and, and commitment. And it does require a deliberate understanding of different cultures and traditions and values. Uh, and, and bringing all that together is, yeah, it, it, it's a great challenge and a great, great, great opportunity. At the same time, yeah. yes. You are the first uh, Secretary General that came through the ranks. So you know uh, the Red Cross, Red Crescent really very well. But what surprised you about this job, being at the top? You know, Sasa, I always say that you think you know, you don't. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, 
I grew in this organization as a volunteer, so I have gone through a different type of experiences working in my own national society as a young volunteer, working as a staff, working in different parts of the world, uh, having gone through also our, strategy, uh, our statutory processes and meetings and events. Yes, I have gone through all that. But until and unless you sit in a particular chair, um, if anybody says, I know, I think that would be an overstatement. Um, so in, in, I think from the point of view of the job, I, I should say I knew what the, job, what the job entails. But what you never know and what you can never be prepared for is the things that happen on a daily basis in an organization like ours. And for me, that happens with COVID. So on top of a regular um, surprises and uncertainties, we had COVID-19, which we had to deal with uh, from day one. My first job as a Secretary General was to signing an emergency appeal to respond to COVID-19. And that brought all sorts of unknowns. Uh, you don't know what you don't know. And that was basically the, the reality. But what positively surprised me in, in this experience was even when you don't know things, even there are daily uncertainties, when the human minds decide to come together with open mind to listen and learn, you find solutions every day. And it, it, sort, of, it sort of rebuilt my trust on the power of humanity. Uh, and then, in you know, the early days of COVID-19, every morning when we started the work, we did not know what the day would look like. All the new information coming, we did not know whether they were true or not, because the nature of information was changing every day. So it really, it sort of, the, the, the surprise of the changes that happens every day, but at the same time, surprise that when people can come together, actually you find solutions to even those issues you don't know. And that was a very positive experience uh, for me to start as a secretary general. I doubt there's anyone in the world who hasn't heard about the Red Cross Red Crescent. What would you tell them in your own words? What is it, the Red Cross Red Crescent? And what is IFRC? Generally, people, when they hear the word Red Cross Red Crescent or when they see the emblems, it generally associates with help. And it generally associates with something good, even when people don't know. They know that this is an organization which does something good. And that's how I got attracted to the organization in the first place. When I joined, I did not know what Red Cross was, but I knew this is something good, and it does something good to other people. And I think that's, that's a very good place to start for any, any organization. But for me, this is a movement of volunteers primarily who come together to make a difference on people's lives. And for me, what is increasingly more important is the Red Cross is about hope, absolutely, but it's also about dignity. And that's where we, we have to start changing in many ways the narrative. And I think that the narrative that exists in the humanitarian ecosystem, including in our organization, is always about bringing support and always somehow articulating our work in that power imbalance, that we are here to support you, meaning that we have something you don't, and we have the ability to come and support you. So, and this narrative exists in the, in the humanitarian ecosystems, and I repeat that narrative myself many times, but I don't like that narrative increasingly. So that's why I think the narrative needs to change much more about working together to bringing hope and dignity. And it's about working together. Uh, and I have mentioned this number of times that, you know, when I see, including in our documents, when we describe people as vulnerable people, I find that very, very difficult increasingly because it again somehow presents the people as vulnerable. The people are not vulnerable. Each individual is as good as who I am sitting here in Geneva.
but they happen to be in a vulnerable situation. So it's about addressing the vulnerability of the situation, but with due respect to the people. And, and, and for me, this is, this, is, this is Red Cross. This is the people willingly coming as volunteers. Primarily, of course, we do have a, a, a mechanism to make that machine work, but it's primarily volunteers with the objective to create hope and dignity, but working together in solidarity. For me, that is the Red Cross all about. And of course, as I see, we are uh, that, that platform for the volunteers to come together through their national societies. And when you are present in 191 countries, you know, with more than 16 million volunteers, with more than 200,000 local units, you do need a platform for all of that to come together so that we can build the synergy to achieve the objectives. And that's basically what IFRC is. That's the platform for this massive network to, go, to, to come together. Have that platform for coordination, for learning, for, for supporting each other, learning from each other, and also bringing that collective power to influence the global decisions. And that's what basically Federation is all about. You alluded to a diverse workforce earlier. The humanitarian sector in general is also diversifying in many ways. It's still very Western or Northern dominated, but it is changing. How do you see the situation um, in terms of inclusion in the humanitarian sector and specifically in the IFRC? What are some of the trends that are seeing that are encouraging, but perhaps also some, I know you prefer to talk about opportunities, but maybe there are some challenges that come with that for the sector and for IFRC per se. The good thing is it's changing. The bad thing is it's not changing fast enough. Uh, clearly we have seen, I mean, when I started in the mid 90s in the international work, the, basically, I had to join the workforce uh, as uh, IFRC. It was called the Delegates from Non-Traditional Sources. It was something special. And now, it's quite normal that we hire people from Nepal, from Bangladesh, from Gabon. So there has been a huge progress since the time I joined uh, the IFRC, and that sort of is a similar trend for other organizations also. So that's, I think, quite positive. And I think when you look at the numbers, and I think it's steadily improving to get a much better balance, also from the gender point of view, but also from the inclusion in, in a more broader sense. So clearly we are, we are, we are making a good, good progress. Uh, and, and I could see increasingly the, the, the growing commitments from the organizations to, to be truly diverse, both from geographical point of view, gender point of view. But I think what needs to change now at the same time is a mindset. Because a lot of times what I find is, oh, we need to get the numbers, so let's hire the local staff. Good progress. So when you look at the numerical KPIs, it looks great. But if we go one step below and analyze, is there a true diversity? Is there a true inclusion in the power structure, the decision-making ability uh, of, the, of, the, of the staff that, that get recruited in different names and categories? And I know there are some legalities we have to uh, we have to accept and, 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 and we have to adapt to. But from that point of view, I think the, the sort of the newer discussions around the decolonization, so the decolonization of the mindset, I think has to happen in a much bigger way than it is happening at the moment. So good progress. Uh, but I think we all need to be very conscious about that. The sense of inclusion or sense of exclusion uh, uh, from uh, from, from many colleagues, including in, in, in IFRC. I think we, we, we have a long way to go here. And the first step to make a change is to, to recognize. And I, I believe that we have recognized the, the, the need to change, need to improve. And I know there is a conscious effort uh, being made. Do you think your perspective on this issue is influenced by your own background, by where you come from? I think it's... Uh, it's influenced by definitely my own personal background, no doubt on that, but also the experience I have lived, uh, you know, since I started the international work. 
uh, but also uh, numerous engagement, of course, I have with colleagues, uh, both within the organization, particularly within the, within the membership. Uh, so it definitely, I think your personal lived experience definitely influences how your thought process develops. The IFRC responds to emergencies every day. We're in a perpetual emergency. Some are relatively small, others will impact millions of people. Looking at the big picture, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in that light? And what are the greatest, again, I'm gonna say, humanitarian challenges we face today? Uh, so definitely, and I think, you know, from the IFRC point of view, I believe that the strategy 2030 uh, we, we approved a few years ago. I think it's, it's been a very, uh, very forward-looking strategy. Um, when the colleagues developed this, I, I, I think I really congratulate them for being, uh, for being so clear on what the coming years could look like. So you're absolutely right. I think the, 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 the disasters and crises are absolutely uh, changing in nature, in scope, in frequency, in size, in the way they impact, and more importantly, the unpredictability. I just uh, returned from Slovenia, and they were hit by the, the type of flooding and landslide in August, which never happened before. Uh, so that, that's absolutely the trend. But what is also really important is to understand that what is triggering that uh, and, and I think that's where this whole discussions, the, our strategic priorities around the climate crisis, around the changing nature of the health issues, the issues around water, an extremely important uh, issue. Um, but also how the cri these crises are having impact on people's mental health issues. Uh, and, and I think the historical issue of the migration and, and displacement of the, of the population that has happened thousands and thousands of years. I think we need to start looking the the crisis from the perspective of the triggers which are influencing, and of course the conflict and, and wars as we see a, a increasing and protracted conflict in, in different parts of the world. I think unfortunately these trends are going to continue at least in the in the near near future because the triggers are not being addressed. Uh, so a lot of time the symptoms are being attempted to be addressed, but not the triggers. Um, the investment in climate uh, crisis is absolutely peanuts. Uh, the issue of migration and displacement becomes too political, so people don't want to touch about it. The issues around uh, the water and, uh, and, and the whole health agenda in many parts of the world, there is still a lack of even basic minimum investment. And even when there is an investment, the investment is not happening at the community level. And there is a big disconnect between the communities and the capitals. And this is one of the things I think the Red Cross, we are trying to be the bridge. So meaning that until and unless the triggers are being addressed appropriately at the scale, the consequences will continue in the, in the, in, in the future. And I think there are two or three things I, I would like to say. The one discussion that happens globally all the time, including in IFRC, because we focus a lot around the international response. When something happens, there is international response coming, and we focus on that, and which is of course important, because the international response comes when the domestic capacity is exceeded. But in this discussion, what gets completely lost is how the domestic response happens. And the domestic response doesn't get the recognition it deserves. I was just in Egypt a couple of weeks ago. The Egypt is hosting nine million migrants and refugees in the countries. The international assistance that's reaching Egypt is in few millions. But hosting nine million requires billions. So meaning that who is investing that billions in Egypt? It's Egypt. And that's where these this international discussions, we have to change the narratives to more holistic discussions and, 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 and debates, rather than just that international component, which is actually a tiny, tiny component. That's the, that's the first part I want to highlight. The second part I want to highlight is, of course, when a, a, a disaster is a, a crisis at its biggest scale, 
there is of course a massive international attention, uh, at least a short period of time, at least until the next big thing happens. Um, but for the people, and this was a question I was posed by an 11 years old boy in Oslo, uh, uh, 18 months ago when I visited Oslo. He said that, Secretary General, why if somebody is affected by a big crisis, they get all the support. But if you are affected by a small crisis, you get no support. And he had moved to Norway from South Sudan. And this is a real issue. I think the, while I fully recognize that the international resources are not unlimited, but there is absolutely no fair way of sharing that resources. So if a crisis is political, politically important, and is part of a geopolitics, it gets attention, it gets much bigger on proportionately higher attention, and if it is of not geopolitical importance, it doesn't. And right now, for the IFSC, Sudan, major, major crisis, which has displaced hundreds of thousands of people in a very short period of time, and the systems inside the countries are collapsing. And a very moderate appeal we have asked for is less than 7% funded. So I think really understanding the trend, unfortunately, doesn't look good moving forward, at least in the short term. So that's why while we respond to the crisis, we also have to respond to the triggers. And I think the third thing is we got to see the people as people, irrespective of the size and nature of the crisis they are affected. And for us, you know, being Red Cross and Red Crescent, it's extremely important that we treat people as people and nothing else. People of our generation <laughs> grew up in the Cold War, East versus West, and the looming threat of nuclear annihilation. Today, young people are growing up feeling directly the impacts of climate change, which is also a very real existential threat. What do you say to young people who say to the older generation who seems to hold all the power that they don't seem to get it? What do you say to them? Is this a big missed opportunity? I think you are... You you are absolutely right, in the sense that, of course, the generations uh, of people go through a different type of crisis, if I, can, if, I can, if I can put it that way. And you are absolutely right, of course, during the Cold War, the, the, the whole issue was, uh, of, the, of, the, of the nuclear inhalation was, was real. And I do agree with you that, you know, the, the, the consequences of the climate crisis are of not less significance. I could actually even a bigger significance in the sense that uh, the climate crisis is impacting every part of the world, rich or poor, uh, landlocked or, uh, or, or ocean-locked island countries. Um, it, and it is touching every aspect of planetary and human health. So from that point of view, climate crisis is a, a, a true crisis. However, I would also really like to insist that we cannot create an environment uh, of doom and gloom. It's a real crisis, it's a serious crisis, its consequences would be tremendous. Despite that, we cannot create the environment of gloom and doom. Why? First, because the human ingenuity, the human ingenuity, as we dealt with the COVID-19, and if the world comes together with its ability, with its capacity and with its ingenuity, the, the, the advances we can make in technologies and, and all sorts of things, we can start making a difference. I think one of the problems in the climate debate is people are looking for one single solution that makes the, that makes the difference. Unfortunately, there is not one single solution. It will have to be a collection of multiple solutions, and some of them might look trivial, and some of them look, will, will look big, but we got to make that changes, however trivial it looks or however significant it looks. And I think if the human comes together, that is possible. That's the first part. The second part, 
is the, the discussions and narrative that, uh, that is existing in the world. And somehow this discussions becomes this versus that. You know, if I'm from the mitigation side, I say, oh, the adaptation is not important. The adaptation people say the mitigation is not important. Now, of course, the loss and damage discussion, uh, and, you know, and there's a lot of angle to the loss and damage, which unnecessarily becomes politicized rather than becoming a tool to support the people who have already incurred the losses damage, which, they can, which cannot be reversed. For me, it's as simple as that. So if we can change again that narrative that we need to invest on mitigation, we need to invest on adaptation, loss and damage is real. The climate is already affecting the people today. And we need to start adapting to all these crises. And when we come together, we can make a difference. I think that's, I believe that we can make a difference, but we also have to convey this message so that we don't create this gloom and doom. You mentioned a couple of your recent trips. Um, you just returned from Slovenia, um, but Slovenia wasn't the only country in Europe, uh, which is not quite so used to, to um, effects of climate change. Europe has seen everything in just a matter of months, from floods to wildfires. Um, what did you see in Slovenia, and how are people coping? The, the issue of the climate crisis is now touching everywhere. I think just a few years ago, this was seen as a problem of the developing world. It's not. Uh, just a few years ago, we saw what happened in Germany, what happened in Netherlands, what happened in Belgium. I witnessed some of those things myself, what happened in Australia. And now, of course, most recently we saw in, in Slovenia, now the fires are still going on in Greece. So now the impact of the climate crisis is truly universal. It may just manifest in a slightly different way in different parts of the world. So what I saw in, in, in Slovenia was, of course, one thing was on unpredictability. So, of course, people were not predicting water to come during this time of the year. The second thing that came was the ferocity and the speed and the volume of the water that just poured in to the country. Uh, and it is a developed country. But the infrastructure simply could not cope with that ferocity it did. Hundreds of bridges washed away, the roads washed away, the houses damaged, the trees and stones washed away. And I think a lot, lot of people were in a bit of a shock that how could this be possible in this time of the year? And the reasonably good infrastructure we have could not cope with it just in a matter of a few hours. A climate-related disaster, this is a bit of a rehearsal. This will happen, unfortunately, again and again. So that means we, when we address our, our mitigation, adaptation measures, it's also important to start looking on the infrastructure, how we build houses and our, our infrastructures. And I know these are the discussions currently happening in Slovenia. But the problem I find, Sasa, is in many countries, the human memory is so too short. We forget in a matter of months what just happened and we go back to the business as usual. And this is where I think the organization like Red Cross can play the role to make sure that actually a change to happen, we need to have sustained advocacy and sustained action. You also returned from a trip to Africa, several countries there where you witnessed uh, the impacts of the compounding crisis, not just climate change, but food insecurity, displacement, migration, conflict, all of that in one. What's your takeaway from that trip? And does it impact what you will say to the United Nations General Assembly when you go next week? Absolutely, uh, the, 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 the Africa, in many parts of Africa, everything you said exists, plus a number of health uh, issues coming. A lot of small epidemics that don't always make to the big news exist. Uh, there is absolute short supply of the community health workers uh, in, the, in, in the continent. Um, of course, the massive young population 
but the jobs sort of not getting created for, for that. So on top of everything you described, so it sort of becomes that melting pot of, 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 of different issues. And, and these are absolutely uh, real issues impacting you know, hundreds of millions of people. But at the same time, what, what made me feel surprised, let's talk the issue of migration. And of course now living in Europe for the last number of years, uh, when you have a few thousand migrants crossing to the border in Europe, it becomes a big, big issue. Politically, in the media, everywhere. What I saw in Africa was more than 80% of the migrants are actually migrating within Africa. And these countries with a much smaller economy, much smaller capacity to observe the additional people were generously accepting them. And that was the biggest surprise I had. I was in Gambia, relatively small country, relatively undeveloped economy. I visited those border posts and they are welcoming the migrants to come to the countries and with their limited capacity, they are providing every support they could. That was the sort of the positive surprise I had and, 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 and the belief that your generosity is not measured by your wealth, but by your heart. And that's what I saw. And that's the story I think we need to talk in New York much more and the recognition to those people and those communities and those governments who open their heart to others must get the recognition at the job. And at the moment, it doesn't. Did you get the chance to, I know you visited uh, some humanitarian service points that IFRC runs in many countries. There's around 150 of them around the world, I believe. Uh, did you um, have the chance to speak to any of the people who come to these humanitarian service points? And what did they tell you? Well, absolutely. I, I, I visited a number of them. I visited last year, of course, in uh, Central America, going uh, up to North America. And I have talked to a number of uh, people who have used the mental service point. The, the, and, I, I, and I have asked them, the two or three things that comes out very consistently from them. First thing is, the, the minute they see the flag of Red Cross or Red Crescent, the first thing they say is, we feel safe. So there is a degree of trust because a lot of time they are moving in fear. They don't know what happens to them uh, with the level of exploitation and abuse that happens in their journey. Of course, they are very afraid. So they say, when they see the Red Cross education, first thing they say is safety. And then once that happens, they move to the next level, which is help, because sometimes they do need support. And the next level they go is information, because they're on this unknown journey. And at that time, the information becomes so valuable. Once your first basic needs are met, the information actually becomes more valuable. But what really touched my heart was that feeling of safety, the minute they saw the Red Cross Red Crescent. And because they are organized and managed in a very similar way, so when they move from countries to countries, they feel that continuity of safety and uh, the gratefulness to the volunteers. Most of the humanitarian service points are manned by Red Cross or Red Crescent volunteers, a lot of time young people. In your job, clearly, as we just heard, you speak to people at their lowest points. They've been displaced by a flood, by an earthquake. They've lost everything, sometimes their loved ones. And then you also speak to world leaders, diplomats, donors. What are the differences and similarities in talking to people in such very different circumstances? You know, sometimes I feel that the world leaders complain more than those people in distress. <laughs> uh, no, jokes aside, you know, uh, 
and, and especially before I became Secretary General, I was mostly involved in the operations. Uh, so I have sort of lived those realities on the ground, working with our national societies at the community level. Uh, and of course, people go through a very, very tough time. But one thing that has always inspired me is even in those difficult moments, very dis distressing moments, the people's people's hope and aspirations are still alive. When you see a family who is in a desperate situation, one thing uh, feeling forced to migrate, but is still having aspiration for the children, that I'm doing this because I want to give a better life for my children moving forward. And that, that hope that that aspiration for life, the better life for themselves and for their families and for their communities. It, it, it's incredible. Of course, you see the tears and you see the wounds and you see the, the people in the hospitals, but when you talk and when you try to get into their, their inside thinking, that aspirations are still alive and kicking and the commitment to meet those aspirations are all. And sometimes I do feel like that, you know, we as the world leaders would have the same level of enthusiasm and aspiration on a daily basis. I think we would do a much better job than we are doing today to, 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 to lead the world. And one thing in, in the global debate and discussions, I know, of course, every leader is working very, very hard to deliver uh, the good thing. I mean, I, I, I have no doubt on commitment of all the leaders in the world. But I do feel sometimes when I'm in these big debates, in New York, be it in New York or in COP or in, in Geneva, a lot of times we do not come to this event to listen. We come to these events to talk. We give our speech and we move on to another event. We don't wait to see what others have to say. And a lot of times what happens in some of these events is because we have people from the communities, from, from the countries, from the affected areas, they generally get to speak at the end. By the time their time comes to speak, the people have spoken and left the room. And this I find as a problem. And so for me, the one of the things probably, and I will put myself in the category of the leaders, I think we must make time to listen. Maybe not everything. Maybe we may need to be a little selective here and there, but we must make those time to listen. And this I find is one of the things I think we can be better. Uh, those of us who are leading the global organization. In this context, how does one remain authentic to themselves as a person while at the same time represent such a large and storied institution as I foresee? You know, the, the one thing I, I have always been influenced uh, by a saying I heard when I was a young person, uh, and the saying was, when you tell the truth, you don't need to remember what you said. And for me, that is extremely, extremely important. I do know now, uh, you know, there's a lot of data and there is a lot of polling happens and, uh, and, and a lot of times the leaders are somehow influenced or pushed to say that, okay, the data is saying this, so you have to say this or you have to say that. And I absolutely value the value of data. And, 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 the, and the evidence and the public opinions. But it's extremely important that you don't lose the truth because you want to somehow conform to the data that is available in front of you. So for me, especially if you are leading a very diverse organization like IFC, with different cultures and traditions and the reach and the experience remaining authentic is absolutely critical. That's the only way we can pull this, the organization of this diversity in the, in, the, in, in the same direction. And the core fundamental of authenticity is the truth. And when you do that, you don't need to remember what you said. Ultimately, what is the legacy you hope to leave on the world in terms of how we help people in need? I will be very honest with you. I, I don't see myself as someone who is thinking of leaving a legacy. I, I don't put myself at that, that level. 
The only thing that I would like, if you can call that legacy, <laughs> is that when I finished the, my job and left, people would say he tried his best. How did you end up a humanitarian? You're an engineer by training, which is, you also told us earlier. Has this job changed you, changed who you are? How? Um, sometimes I think about it, Sasa, and I don't think I have figured it out. <laughs> um, I have been very honest about it. When I was in high school, I joined uh, Junior Red Cross as a, as a, as a, as a, as a youth member. Uh, and that time, I did not know that cross much. I knew this is a good organization, does something good. My initial interest was in student politics. Uh, but as I couldn't get into student politics, I joined the Red Cross. That's how I joined. I did not know. I was not influenced by big ideals and principles. But I did want to be in a social environment where I could exercise at least some leadership potentials. But once I joined, the, the Junior Red Cross in Nepal. I started understanding the organization and its values and its principles and what it does around the world. That time we didn't have internet and everything. So uh, you read what was what is available in the libraries and things like that. Um, and because I sort of self-taught English myself by listening to BBC, that also forced me to listen to a lot of radios. <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, and, and of course, I got to know a lot uh, through that. And during that journey, I understood uh, that what Red Cross was all, what, what was all about. And then, of course, I studied engineering. And, um, and, and, and I wanted to work as an engineer. But somehow, this did not give me the job satisfaction I was looking for. Did you ever work as an engineer? I did, but a very short period of time. But it was so short that I didn't even put it in my CV. <laughs> But it just didn't give me the satisfaction. I was just not satisfied. And it made me think, what should I do? And then it sort of took me back to my days as a young Red Cross volunteer. And, and I sort of felt that actually I enjoyed that much more. Uh, and, and I was thinking, shall I pursue the further study? Or if I get the opportunity to do something like that, and luckily that time, there was a position available in Nepal Red Cross. I joined and I thought, okay, this is what we need to do. So it was not a big discovery in the, in the sense that I discovered, but along the process, I thought that this was giving me the satisfaction. Uh, and, you know, as I'm a science student, um, you know, I, I was very impressed by Albert Einstein and Newton's, you know, which when we studied in these colleges. But... One thing I remembered, and that sort of stuck into my head, uh, what Einstein said, was that, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like that, the, you live a real life if you live that in making difference in someone else's life. Something like that. And that sort of had struck, stuck on me, being a science student and being a big fan of Einstein. But as a scientist, that was the human philosophy he had, and it touched me uh, very much. And, and somehow, I think, again, I'm, I'm not claiming that that has been sort of, and I have been perfect on that, but every volunteering job or the sort of the regular job I have done since then, I have always tried to do, whether it be it in the office or in the field, thinking that is my action helping to make difference in somebody else's life. And in the evening when I go, and if I can say that it did, I sleep very well. If we look at your LinkedIn profile, the first job that you have listed there um, is a refugee program in Damak, which were camps for Bhutanese refugees. How did you get involved in that, and how did that shape you? So that was the story I was telling before. So when I was not satisfied as an engineer, and I was looking to do something else, and that opportunity came. And, uh, and I just felt like, okay, this could be uh, something I could, I could do. Of course, I didn't have much of a job experience, so I think I was quite lucky to, uh, to, get, that, to get that job. And, 
and working in the in the in the camps. You know, we had initially we had thousands of people crossing the border, coming to the camps. We were setting up everything from the very beginning, and I was the only national head of agencies. All the all the other heads of agencies were internationals, and it was a very unique experience for me to be working uh, in that environment and, and listening to people's stories. Um, and then, of course, once they get established in the camps, uh, then they are thinking about their future, their children's future, um, and just listening to the stories day in and day out and how thankful they were for the little support they were getting in, in those camp environments, I think in many ways cemented my belief that if you want to live a satisfied life, I think you should do something for others. And, and since then, I haven't looked back. If I may take you back to your childhood, how did you grow up? Did you see need around you? Did that also encourage you to help others? Did you have mentors or people who inspired you at that time? You know, I come from a humble family, um, big family, um, but we are not poor. And my parents worked very, very hard to keep us a good life with the means they had. So actually, I would say I had a comfortable childhood, not luxurious. But that was possible because of the hard work of my parents. So uh, if I see of any inspiration in my childhood, I would say it's my parents, really. Both of them were not educated, but they knew the power of education for the family. And they worked very, 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 very hard. And, and I could see that every day. So my childhood experience is very much in my family and, and looking into that commitment and dedication of my parents for the family, basically. I think I started understanding some of the humanitarian issues was only after I joined the Junior Red Cross. Uh, until that time, it was much more you and your family with your friends sort of growing up. Uh, but once we, I joined the Junior Red Cross, that's when I started investing and understanding. And once you get the understanding, you start noticing. And once you start noticing, I think you get encouraged to do something about it. And that's basically when the sort of the humanitarian streak came after I joined the Red Cross. That's a beautiful thought as we, as we approach the end of our conversation today. I would like to ask you two more questions, if I may. I've already asked about who inspired you when you were young. Today, with everything that's going on, very stressful, hectic job that you have, the bad news, the emergencies that are all coming at you all the time, what inspires you today? What gives you hope? What keeps you so optimistic as I know you are? I know I get this question asked many, many times. Who inspired you? Uh, I cannot always pick one person or, or one event because in, in different states of your life, you get inspired by different people. And also those people change. I'm like when I was in high school, I was a bit I idealistic and I was heavily uh, inspired by Mahatma Gandhi at that time, and also a politician in Nepal called B.P. Koirala, you know, heavily, heavily inspired by them. And, you know, as I grew up, uh, you know, when I read about uh, that place from JFK to go to the moon, and that was a huge inspiration for me. And I, and I think that continues to inspire me today. And I, I know sometimes I drive my colleagues nuts because I do believe that you can reach the moon type of spirit in our humanitarian work. And, you know, and when I was learning English and I heard that I have a dream speech uh, 60 years ago, you know, I got inspired. When I saw Nelson Mandela coming out of the prison and, uh, and, 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 and what he said about for him to leave the bitterness and hatred back in the prison. And if he could not do that, he would still be in the prison. And that thought was very inspiring to me. And once he came to lead South Africa, 
the forgiveness he could demonstrate. The weak people cannot forgive. The only strong people can forgive. And that strength of forgiveness, what Nelson Mandela could show. At this, you know, different time, a different level of inspiration coming from different people. Right now, I must say that, I mean, okay, it might seem like oh, maybe, you know, Jagan is making it up. <laughs> uh, but I can tell you that in February, when I started this job, and then when COVID-19 happened, and with that, with all that uncertainty came, and then when the hospital started getting flooded with people, sick people, and then when the lockdown started, and when people had to go in, but somebody had to go out to help others. What doctors did that time, what nurses did that time, what the volunteers, like that of the Red Cross Red Crescent, a million volunteers going out every single day that time, that truly inspires me. And I think sometimes this is not well recognized. Imagine when all of us were afraid to leave our room. Those nurses were there treating those people with the virus, or those doctors, or those volunteers, I don't think we are fully recognizing their commitment. And that truly, and when I, when I remember that, what I did was nothing. What they did is truly inspiring. Finally, the name of the podcast is People in the Red Vest. What does the red vest mean to you? <laughs> I think probably, you know, in this discussion, maybe two or three words came, and, uh, and maybe those three words probably best describes it. I think for the people in distress, I think it's a sign of safety and hope and dignity. For me, that's what the Red Vest is all about. If people feel the sense of safety, sense of hope and sense of dignity. That's what it read with. Thank you, Secretary General Jagan Chapagain, for speaking with me today. It has been a real pleasure and an honor. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard, Damian Naylor, and myself. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard, Irina Ruano, and Melis Figanmeshe. Graphic design by Valentina Shapiro, and web support from Chris Okwa and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>